Lord, the grass withers and the flower fades, but your word abides forever. And may your word now do its work in encouraging, exhorting, and even exalting you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, Max Lucado writes that for thousands of years, the relationship had been perfect. As far back as anyone could remember, the moon had faithfully reflected the sun's rays. Shine on, moon, the people would sing, and, and he did. Well, in a way he did. You see, the moon didn't actually shine. He reflected. He took the light given to him by the sun and redirected it toward the earth. A simple task of receiving illumination and sharing it. One day, trouble began, though, when a star passed by and planted a thought in the moon's core. Must be tough being the moon, the star suggested. What do you mean? Oh, I love it. I've got an important job to do. When it gets dark, people look up to me for help, and I look to the sun. He gives me what I need, and I give the people what they need. People depend on me to light up the world, and I depend on the sun. That's exactly what I mean, the star said. You depend on the sun. You're the sidekick. You don't have a name for yourself. Stop reflecting and start generating. Do your own thing. Be your own boss. Get people to see you for who you really are. The moon paused and thought for a moment. And what the star said made sense. The moon was suddenly aware of all the inequalities in their relationship. The moon slowly said, Why should he have to work the day and I have to work the night shift all the time? And why should he be the one who has who doesn't have to have astronauts step on them first. And why should I always be the one accused of making waves? You're right, prodded the star. Go on, discover the real moon. And such was the beginning of the breakup. Rather than turning his attention toward the sun, the moon began turning his attention toward himself. I think that's an apt metaphor for our last sermon, because this is our third sermon looking at God's design for marriage. And God designed marriage to be a reflection of Him first, not first a celebration of your love. And yet God made such a wonderful world that as we reflect Him, we get the most joy out of it. And as we've examined the Bible's teachings over the last few weeks, we've realized that they are quite countercultural. They're even hard to hold on to in this day. And yet that's nothing new. When Jesus told the Pharisees of what God's design was for marriage, Jesus' own disciples said, If such is the case, it's better not to marry. Yet while Jesus' message may seem harsh, it actually leads to the blessed life. As Jesus said, to live for self actually is to die. And yet when we die to ourselves, then we get to live to God and enjoy life. You see, Jesus as our creator, as our savior, he wants us to die to ourselves. Because following ourselves doesn't bring us joy and happiness. It brings us death and destruction. So he calls us to die that we might live. And he gives us rules so that he might direct us and bring us joy. That we might reflect God. And in fact, this morning we're going to see three ways that we can reflect God. If you have a bulletin, this outline is on the back. But we're going to see three things. First, that our marriages reflect God and that the sinful are forgiven. Next, that the needy are served. And third, that the hungry are satisfied. First, we'll be looking briefly in Luke chapter 7, 36 through 50, because there we're going to see the sinful forgiven. Now, 
You might be thinking, this is a real downer of a way to begin a sermon on marriage, talking about forgiveness. And yet the reality is, every single marriage, not just every single marriage, every single relationship is going to have problems. The question is, how do we respond when they act towards us in sinful ways? The natural response is we do two things. We remember it, and we try to get revenge for it. We are tempted to download in our brains what they did and put it in our long-term memory. And then when another situation arises, we like to play the tape in front of them so they can remember how harshly they treated us. Not only do we want them to remember, but then we want to exact revenge and punishment on them. They must pay before there is any peace between us. Some of you who are regular attenders may remember my friend Richie Goodrich. He's been here twice in the last two years, and he's come and preached, and he used to serve in a country in Asia as a missionary. And while he was there, he told of a time when his teammate was holding a discussion with various church leaders, and he asked the church leaders, his teammate did, what do you need to do before you forgive your wife? And one of them quickly raised his hand, and he said, yes, he said, well, first, I must beat her before she repents, and then I will forgive her. The Friend of Richie couldn't believe his ears, but then he couldn't believe his eyes because all of the other church leaders shook their head in agreement. Now, we might be shocked that they would do that. How could they say that? But yet, I wonder, how many of us actually, though we may not say it with our words, but with our actions, show I must first beat them with my words. They first have to hear from me how harsh they've treated me. They first need to hear from me how rude they've been. And we may never beat anyone with fist, but with our words, they're going to have to hear it before I will offer them forgiveness. Or maybe it's not words. Maybe you beat them up with your silence and your emotional distance. Do they have to suffer your revenge before you'll give them your reconciliation? And married couples, may I exhort you to consider if maybe one of the biggest problems in your marriage right now, one of the things that's hurting your joy in your marriage is your desire to remember and get revenge. That instead of following our hearts, God calls us not to remember and revenge, though. He calls us to say, look, act like me. Reflect how I act, and your marriage will improve. Well, what does that even look like? What does it mean? How does God treat us when we sin? Well, first... God has patience with us in our sins. And he does what the Bible calls forbear. That is, rather than immediately punishing, rather than immediately lashing out, he says, I'm going to be patient with you. I'm going to wait so that you might come back to me. Paul says this in Romans 2.4, Or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, God is slow to anger when he gets cut off in traffic so to speak he doesn't burst out in rage he's not easily set off he's slow to anger proverbs 19 exhorts us good six good sense makes one slow to anger that's what god is like and it goes on and it is his glory to overlook an offense i don't have to record every time someone sins against me I can overlook it. I can say that's not going to go into my files. And 
I'm going to delete it when it comes back up. When you see the clothes they left out again, you actually don't have to say anything. When they say something rude, you actually don't have to say something rude back. You can overlook it. You can forbear. That's how God acts. Yet this leads to the second way God treats us. For while God forbears, He doesn't do so forever. At some point, all of us are going to be called to give an account. And every one of us, at that point, will have to give an account for our sins. What will we say? And sometimes, even in our own lives, what they've done is so painful, we can't immediately hit the delete button. It hurt too much. Their actions were too painful. Well, what does love do? Does love mean you just keep taking more and more? Well, no. In fact, most often, the most loving thing to do is gently, humbly, and at the appropriate time, confront them over their sin. Notice I didn't say the most most loving thing is to play the guessing game. Did I do something wrong? Well, you should know. Well, I don't know. But you should know why I'm angry at you. That's not love. Love says, yes, when you did this, it really hurt and it offended me. Love does not pelt or manipulate their spouse, but rather talks to their spouse and gently expresses how those actions hurt you. And this is done not to berate them or attack them, but if they're sinning against you, you know they're ultimately sinning against God. And out of love, you want them to be restored to God and to you. So love does not continue to allow someone to sin. Now you might be thinking, well, yeah, that's all well and good here in this room. We're about to have cake. You know, this is all easy. You you don't live in the same house as this person. We're talking about way too much to forgive. You know, if you saw all the tapes in my head of what they'd done to me, you would say they deserve revenge. And if you know everything that they had done, they would deserve my punishment. And you know what I'll say? Yes, they do. But the truth is, so do you. If God played the tape of everything you've ever done and played every action and attitude you've ever had, and He said, do you want what you deserve? You'd say, no. Would you give me grace? Would you give me mercy? Now this may sound extremely odd, but I want to argue for a second that one of the most essential ingredients for a healthy marriage is to realize that you are a sinner saved by grace. Now you might be thinking, well, why is that true? I have non-Christian friends and they have pretty good marriages and I even know some Christians and they have pretty lousy marriages. And that's true. And yet, anyone who has a good marriage is doing so because they're using the Christian virtues of forbearance, patience, forgiveness. And the question is, what is going to motivate us to continue to forbear, to continue to be patient, to continue to forgive? Well, it's only going to be as we have a heart that realizes our sin. I've had you turn to Luke chapter 7. Let me read real briefly there. Verse 36, it says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she'd learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of his head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, 
he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she's a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And so Jesus is at this meal, and this Pharisee, he's angry. Because at this open meal, this woman who everyone in the city knows a sinner is there at his feet. And the Pharisee thinks, that type of person is below me. I'm not going to be around with such a sinful person. And that's what we do in our relationships. We play our mental tapes of all that they've done, and we despise them. We look down on them. They don't. They don't deserve my forgiveness. They don't deserve this. They deserve my punishment. And yet Jesus then tells the story of the moneylender who has two people owing him, 50 and 500. And he says, well, who's going to be more thankful? Who's going to love more? And the man replies, the one who is forgiven more. And that's when Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven little loves little. You see, like that woman if you realize you are a sinner in God's sight, but he saved you by his grace, like Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you, not that you've done anything. You will then respond with love to God and love to those in God's image, all people. You will then have the resources to forgive that spouse when they do that thing they've done again. It's not easy to forgive. We should never say that, but we recognize what God has done for us and His forgiveness. And then that compels us, motivates us to forgive. We sing, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how He could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous, oh, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. And it's as we marvel in God's grace to a sinner like me that I can then overlook what my spouse just did. It's then that I can talk to them lovingly when it's a little bit more. And it's then that rather than revenge, when they say, I'm sorry, I can forgive them. I can make them not pay the debt. I can release them of it. Now, to those of you here who are not married, may I encourage you, to make this one of your key examinations in concerning a future spouse. You know, watching movies together, saying sweet things in each other's ear, it's really nice. It's really enjoyable. But that's not going to help you know if you'll have a good marriage. What you need to know is, is this the type of person who, when there's conflict, is going to be willing to work this out? Is this the type of person who, when there's problems, is going to be willing to forgive 
And you're not going to be able to determine that over ice cream in a movie. It's as you interact with them in context, as you see how do they treat their family members? How do they treat their parents? Do they have a list of memories? They tell me the tape they keep playing of all that's been done in their past. Or have they forgiven person after person? And so we, in our relationships, in our marriages, we get to be a reflection to our spouse. You want to know what God is like? Well, let me forgive you for what thing you just did that really hurt. And yet God forgave me and I want to reflect that same forgiveness to you. And yet we get to reflect something else in our marriage and that is the needy serve. Flip over one book to John chapter 13. And there is the amazing story of Jesus. And he comes at the Last Supper. He gets down on the ground. And he wipes his disciples' feet. He washes them. You know, in a society that walked everywhere, that had sandals, this was as low a task as you could get. Even servants did not have to do this. And yet Jesus, the creator of the universe, got down on his hands and feet and washed their feet. And look down at John 13, verse 12. Because there, Jesus says, when he had washed their feet, and put on his outer garment, and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And you're right. But if I, then your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. In our marriages, we get to be a reflection of service. The service God has for us in serving our spouse. Yet for many... Marriage is the exact opposite. It's about self-affirmation, self-service. That's why we mentioned a couple weeks ago, sadly there was a Christian with a national radio show, and when a person called in asking about what should I do with my spouse who has Alzheimer's, the Christian radio host said, it's okay to divorce them and go on and go on with your life. Because we have bought this idea that marriage is first about self-fulfillment. And yet Jesus says the exact opposite. You want to bless life? Don't just hear this and go, oh, that's wonderful. That's a wonderful story. He goes, no, no, it's not blessed to know the story. It's blessed if you do the story. If you lived out with your hands and feet service to one another. Along with that, many see marriage about being the culmination only of romantic sparks. A few years ago, a girl famously posted... My love life will never be satisfactory until someone runs through an airport to stop me from getting on a flight. Touching. That may make for a great movie. I'll be honest, I'd probably be crying myself. I'm a little of a sop at times. But it doesn't make for a great marriage. You know, in response to this, one woman wrote, of all the things her husband had done for her, how he'd gone on long road trips with kids, and she talked about how When she was so sick, and these are her words, not mine. When I looked in the mirror, there was nothing romantic looking back at me. But around the wrinkles in my eyes, the parched white cheeks, there was the deep romance of being loved beyond how I looked. And she goes on and on, talking about how her husband served, and yet he never ran through an airport, and yet she had what really mattered. You see, romance 
is the icing on the cake. It's not the cake. You can't build a marriage on romance. What you can build a marriage on, though, is service. Going out and helping your spouse. When I was in college, I had the blessing of where I went to church. The people in the church would often invite college students over. And one couple especially invited me and my friends over. And they were very honest with their lives. And we would talk about everything. And one Sunday, the topic came up of marriage and romance and intimacy. And the husband, at this time in his 50s, looked at all of us men and he said, Men, I'm telling you, if you come home every day and you ask, How can I help you? And if you're kind to your wife, and if you look how you can serve, then he said, you know what? When it comes time for the things you would like, she's more than happy to give. And his wife right there said, that is true. When you serve, you're blessed. Not when you take and demand. In my years of counseling, years of being a pastor, I have found that to be true. The problem is we've confused romance, let's be honest, lust, with love. And we think this person, they need to complete me. And yet it's not about how can they complete me, but how can I serve you? And the beauty thing, the beautiful thing is as Jesus said, as we serve, we are blessed. It's as we reflect God that we receive the blessings ourselves. I wonder if you've ever considered the kind of amazing fact of how many cultures still have arranged marriages and many of those marriages are happy. Well, how can that be? In our culture, we say, you got to find the one you love. you got to find the one. They didn't find the one. They were given one. And yet, they love each other. How could that be? Well, because they're committed to loving and serving each other. Not to keeping so-called romance. One Indian said to a European Indian being from the nation of India, You marry the girl that you love. We love the woman that we have married. And loving your spouse means serving them, helping them, seeing how you can be there for them. So if I may make another encouragement to the unmarried here, what is this person like that you're considering for marriage? When you're around others, are they seeing how they can serve? Or do you see them angling out of service in their house? Are they willing to help make the dinner and help clean up? Or are they always the one to somehow be missing when it's time to do work around the house? Trust me, they will not still seem cute and funny while they're on the couch watching sports, flipping through their phone, or playing video games while you're in the kitchen again. A marriage that honors God, a marriage that blesses each other, is a marriage where both people seek to reflect God and go, how can I serve you? How can I help you in this time and moment? And in all of this should not be understood. The biblical understanding of marriage is not just about, boy, we've got to forgive each other. We're going to sin all the time. And I've got to serve all the time. Boy, this is it's kind of like a business contract. Why would I even want to get married? The Bible tells us that marriage is also about your thirst being satisfied. You know, the Bible has a whole book that delights in the love of a man for a woman. The love in desiring to be married. The love that delights and finds fulfillment in the other. And love that delights even in the consummation of that marriage. It's the book, The Song of Solomon. It's found right after Ecclesiastes, before Isaiah. I'm going to read some verses from there, but don't turn there. You could turn to John chapter 4, because we're going to look at John 4 in just a minute. But here are some of these things 
from the Song of Solomon. There it begins, chapter 1, verse 16, Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Chapter 2, verse 16, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And though it may not have been a Jerusalem airport, when the loved one is gone, there sought after. Chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, On my bed by night I sought him, whom my whole, my whole soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city, in the streets, and in the squares. I will seek him, whom my soul loves. There's a search, there's a desire for the other. On their wedding day, the groom declares, chapter 4, verse 1, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. You have captivated my heart, my bride. As the wedding party ends in chapter 5, verse 1, the friends say, Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Somehow, later in the book, they're separated again, and as the bride searches for him, she cries, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved that you tell me, because I am sick in love. And then lastly, chapter 8, verse 6, as the book wraps up, it says, Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. All that to say, God has given us romance. He's given us marriage. He's given us sex. And God wants us to delight in it. You know, in one respect... We can say that, you know, God gave us a thirst in this area, and that thirst can be satisfied in your spouse. Even today, we love to hear the songs. This is from Chicago. I'm not going to sing it for you. Don't worry. You're the meaning of my life. You're the inspiration. You bring feeling to my life. You're the inspiration. And that is good and proper and right in the right context. The problem comes when we don't realize that that wonderful satisfaction is to be a reflection of a much greater satisfaction and love that we should have. And we see that here in John chapter 4. Because here, Jesus has been with his disciples and he sends them into a town to go get some food and he sits by a well. And this woman comes to him and Jesus asks her for some water. And Jesus says, if you know who I am, you'd be asking me for water. And look down in John chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Because there it says, Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water, from the well he's meaning, will th be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, Give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said, You're right in so saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now Jesus is tying into the idea that every single person was made to be satisfied, made to find meaning, made to have purpose in life. And this woman, the woman at the well, has looked for that meaning. She has looked for life in romantic relationships. 
And she's burned through five and she's now on the sixth and she still needs water that will satisfy her soul. And Jesus is saying, I'm that water. I will satisfy you. You could have six more. I could come back two years from now and you're number 20 and you'll still be thirsty because you're not made to find your ultimate satisfaction in anything on this earth. You know, that is what Song of Solomon ultimately points forward to. You know, I think the Song of Solomon is describing the real love of a man and a woman. And yet I think it also has applications for understanding Christ and the church. We read Ephesians 5 and it talks about that. Or in John 5, Jesus is talking to them and he says, You search the scriptures that you might have life. And it is they that bear witness to me. You see, God gave us a book. The Song of Solomon. That's all about love. It's all about romance. It's all about intimacy. Because he wanted us to realize that our love should be satisfied in him and him alone. Yes, God gave Eve to Adam to be a helper, to bring fellowship, to bring joy. But Eve was not meant to give complete fulfillment, complete meaning. Psalm 16, 11 says, You, God, Make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 73, 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. If we don't realize that, that the real, that the satisfying of our thirst in marriage should point to the marriage of the bride of Christ, with Christ, then we're going to run into all kinds of problems. For example, like the woman at the well, we'll see complete meaning. We'll complete, find complete satisfaction, or we'll try to, through relationships and sex. Again, I'm not saying marriage is horrible. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. The point is, don't look for something in creation to give you what only the Creator was intended to give. I don't know what the family is going to get at their lunch, but imagine they were going to get the best T-bone and the best lobster meal. If you go into that meal thinking, this is going to satisfy me for the rest of my life, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because it's not meant to satisfy you for the rest of your life, it's meant to satisfy you for one meal. But if you go in and say, this is going to be great, and you eat it and you go, this is good, and then you could go, what a wonderful thing God gave me for that time. Then you'll enjoy it for what it is. And so if you look at marriage to be all-encompassing, everything that you need and will satisfy your thirst, you will be deeply heartbroken. No human can give you what God is meant to give. And yet, if you look to your spouse and go, this is a great thing. They really do satisfy me. Yes, it's not ultimate, but there is joy. Then you will find satisfaction in it. One man said, only God satisfies the hungry heart. Marriage is but one of the channels he uses to enable us to taste how deeply satisfying his thirst-quenching grace can be. So let's just... Look at three quick ways the Song of Solomon helps us wonder, understand the wonderful aspects of marriage and a relationship with God. First, the spouses longed for the other one when they were gone. 
I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. I don't know what your thoughts are of a relationship with God, but it's not just to be a mental exercise that you come to learn a bunch of facts or you come to understand many Bible verses. There should be a longing, a deep personal longing to know God. That you could say, come quickly, Lord Jesus, I want to be with you. Second, the Song of Solomon reminds us of the mutual love and union. For I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. You know, it's not that we have a love for God and he's going, eh, I don't know. I got lots of options. I might love you back. I got to consider. No, God loves his people. Consider these words from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. God delights in you. He loves you. He sings over you with joy. God did not send his son to die going, "Eh, I really don't want to do this, but it was written somewhere. I got to do this in love for the world he sent his son. And even now, he's not up there, arms crossed, making sarcastic comments every time you do something wrong. Hey, I knew they'd do that. He loves his children. He loves his bride. Third song, Solomon shows the deep satisfaction found in the beloved. Yes, that doesn't ultimately come in the spouse, but real satisfaction and joy can come. That's why we sing about the Lord, I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. Now, none of this should be taken to think that this analogy means that we have a relationship with God that is sexual. The picture is pointing to something greater. Just as Jesus did not literally mean to the woman at the well, here's a glass of water. So, Song of Solomon is not pointing directly to that. It's pointing to a higher thing that will satisfy. That's why Isaiah 55, 1-3 tells us, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Every single one of us has been made for joy. We've been made for delight. We've been made for satisfaction. Do you have that? Does your life have meaning and purpose? You know, the Bible warns us over and over. The problem is we search for those things in all the wrong ways. We search for that outside of God. We turn to the gifts rather than the giver. And what should we do? Well, we should do what we were just called to do in Isaiah. Come to the one who offers good drink that costs no money. You don't have to do anything. Jesus paid it all. So all you need to do is say, Lord, I've been running from you. I've been looking for satisfaction and all these other things and I've come back empty. Would you be my satisfaction? Forgive me for pursuing it other ways and 
Thank you for sending your son who died for my sin of doing that. And then recognize the goodness of the Lord who gives that forgiveness. Or as Isaiah says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. Thus today we get to witness this beautiful picture that God has given us. And it will be beautiful, enjoying and even satisfying if you realize just that. That it's meant to be a reflection of God, not meant to be God. Max Lucado finished his illuminating illustration of how when the moon left the sun, he enjoyed himself at first. But then he began to realize the futility of it all. He realized the sun gave me everything I needed. I served a purpose. I was warm. I was content. I was, I was what I was made to be. Suddenly, the moon felt the old familiar warmth. He turned and there was the sun. The sun had never moved. I'm glad you're back, the sun said. Let's get back to work. And to this day, whenever the sun shines and the moon reflects and darkness is illuminated, the moon doesn't complain or get jealous. He does what he was intended to do all along. The moon beams. And so, may our faces be beaming with joy today as we delight in this wedding that is about to take place. May Daryl and Latavia beam and delight with one another, and may we all beam and delight to the God who's given us all these good things. Let's pray. O Lord, your gifts and your goodness and your grace are far greater than we even imagine. We have tasted a drop, and we have wanted more. And Lord, you satisfy that thirst. Oh Lord, thank you though that you've given us many wonderful things on earth. You've given us this picture, marriage. And we thank you for the blessing it is to see Daryl and Latavia be married here. And we ask that you would bless them, that they would have that deep delight in one another and in you. Oh Lord, may you be honored in all we say and do. And may we find our deepest satisfaction in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.